All right, Christmas is called Christmas for a reason, which is not difficult to uh, uncover. That reason is it's a mass, which is a celebration of Christ. So I want to talk a little bit tonight um, about Christ, about some of my concerns and some of my excitement on that um, subject. Um, I want to draw from a number of sources in in my talk to you. Uh, Last time I spoke, um, uh, I guess three weeks ago, I... um, I uh, finished with, with this verse from the Bible in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16, which I read the first bit in the New King James, which I want to do again tonight, and then, and then I want to read the rest of it from, from the message version of the Bible. Because um, it really says, helps me where I am and helps me to express to other people where I am. Uh, and therefore helps me to express why I want you to be where I am. It says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. It gives you the reason Christ Jesus came into the world, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Joel's given you a good description of that, which, which I liked. Um, and um, he, he was good at doing that, Christ, okay? It was a lot better than I was led to believe, okay? Um, but as I said to you the other week, um, I have a little contention um, with the Bible that some, some verses in the Bible were inserted to, to push a point of view that are not actually in the original, and there are some interpretations that also are weighted towards a, a predetermined stand on a particular issue. And then there's another aspect of the Bible which I call half-verse theology, uh, of which I was the victim for many years. So I was taught, for this reason Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was it. But in recent times I've discovered there's lots of commas in the Bible, and commas are wonderful because commas allow something else to be said. Uh, Commas express to you that the last word's not been spoken on this. So I love commas. Uh, Jenny's favorite is semicolons. Jenny, Jenny Byrne loves semicolons. I love commas. Because commas say, okay, that may be true, but the last word on that has not yet been spoken. So I'm a little sad that, that I, and I could run through them for you, but I'm not going to do tonight, of all the half-verse theology that I was raised with, um, in one sense didn't do me any harm because it was pointing me the right direction, but in another sense did me some harm because it didn't allow my heart and spirit to expand into wide enough areas of understanding the greatness of God, the bigness of God. So, so God's got a lot bigger in recent years because I discovered the comma. So, so it is true Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but that's not the last word. You see, you've got to add in there that, that, that then... In this letter to Timothy, Paul says, of whom I am the chief. So what happens in that is he's saying he qualifies probably more than anybody. So this is not, it's not a verse of exclusivity. It's a verse of great inclusivity. And I don't want to re-preach this. You can go back and listen to it on the, 
on the, uh, on the website media. Um, but I like how Peterson puts it in the message from there, from, from verse 16, because he, he puts verse 15 and 16 like this. Here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and this is what I like what he says. I'm proof. Public sinner number one of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. I present myself to you as someone who never could have made it without sheer mercy. And now he shows me off, Paul says. So who does he show off? The chief of sinners. Who does he show off? The one who evidently, and by accusation, was getting it more wrong than most people which Paul could actually account for the things that he had done, which some of us have never done, most of us have never done, which were extremely unacceptable. But he said, but you see, the issue is, my badness is what has made me God's trophy to illustrate to you the thing at the beginning. Now, the problem is that, that within a religious mindset, badness disqualifies you from being the evidence of God in showing you off about his grace and mercy. I'm glad that we're not afraid to be honest about our weaknesses in this place and uh, the areas that we failed and the things that we have done because it's those very things that Paul says that God shows us off as evidence, first of all, of his endless patience. And trust me, God's had to be endlessly patient with me, okay? And still continues to be patient. But he says to those who are right on the edge of trusting him, forever. My desire is to be an example of the mercy of God to those of you who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. Because that really is the wonderful objective. Now, um, I'm glad about that. Some people are mad about that. In fact, believe it or not, at one of the latest, um, one of the, one of the uh, latest rumors about, about me and the rock, these things happen, um, is that the police have had to come twice uh, in order to warn us about the things that we're preaching. <laughs> and uh, that's circulating in some pretty high-level circles, ministerial-level circles. Well, if they have its news to me, and if they have its news to my staff, and... Uh, the truth is quite the opposite, that any interaction we've had with the police has been because they can't believe how kind and gracious we are being to people that they have difficulty accommodating and helping. You see, this too much grace reaches people who need grace but offends those who think they've already got enough grace and there's not enough to go around for everybody else. So I assure you the police have not been to warn us about what we're preaching. Because how can you warn somebody against mercy and grace and kindness and goodness and forgiveness? And so the challenge I face in, in, in speaking from the reality of my own life and the passion of my heart is to get you to consider trusting this one called Jesus with and in everything forever. Um, with due consideration to all the real and imagined obstacles that stand in the way of that, of which I am only too readily aware so, um, keep this a little bit light and then finish off. I, uh, I want to show you a clip from a movie. Um, this, this movie was released in the 80s and uh, it was considered to be pretty offensive by, 
by many in the church community, not everybody, but many in the church community, because the subject matter um, could be misinterpreted and misunderstood to be a direct uh, challenge to the authenticity of Christ and the Christian message. Um, the real truth is that the movie isn't, but I understand why it was seen to be so. And, um, I was a little more touchy back then as well. And there are some scenes in the movie that, that I still personally struggle with. Um, they cause a little battle in me because um, I think that they um, don't put enough seriousness on some aspects that are in the movie. Uh, the movie I'm talking about was, was made by the, the Monty Python group and was co is called The Life of Brian. Now, the problem is that most of the church assumed immediately that what it was doing was dishonoring the name of Christ, but it actually wasn't. And if you watch the first scene, you can see it's actually got nothing to do with discrediting or dishonoring the name of Christ. It's actually pointing out the foolishness of humanity and people when it comes to who we think Christ is, and often who we follow as our Christ may not be the real person. So, so it's called The Life of Brian. So I want to show you the opening clip, okay, uh, because it really does relate to this time of year, and I think it's wonderful, and I hope you're not offended, but it will help me to do what I want to say. So this is the opening scenes of The Life of Brian. wise men. What? We are three wise men. Well, what are you doing creeping around a car shed at two o'clock in the morning? That doesn't sound very wise to me. We are astrologers. We have come from the east. Is this some kind of joke? We wish to praise the infant. We must pay homage to him. Homage? You're all drunk. It's disgusting. Out! Come on, out! No. Burst in here with tales about oriental fortune tellers. Come on, out! No, no, we must see him. Go we were led by a star. Led by a bottle of all right. Go on out. Well, we, we must see him. We have both presents. Out. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Well, why didn't you say he's over there? 
Sorry, the place is a bit of a mess. Well, what is mer anyway? It is a valuable bomb. A bomb? What are you giving him a bomb for? It might bite him. What? That's a dangerous animal. Quick, throw it in the trough. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It's great big. No, 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 it is an ointment. Oh, there is an animal called a bomb. Or did I dream it? So you're astrologers, are you? Well, what is he then? Hmm? What star sign is he? Capricorn. Uh, Capricorn, eh? What are they like? He is the son of God, our Messiah, King of the Jews. That's Capricorn, is it? Uh, no, 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 that's just him. Oh, I was going to say, otherwise there'd be a lot of them. By what name are you calling him? Uh, Brian! We worship you, O Brian, who are Lord over us all. Praise unto you, Brian, and to the Lord our Father. Amen. You do a lot of this, then? What? This praising. No, 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 no. Uh, well, um, if you drop in by again, do pop in. <laughs> and thanks a lot for the gold and frankincense. Uh, but don't worry too much about the myrrh next time, all right? <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> well, weren't they nice? <laughs> Out of that bloody mine, but still. Look at that. <laughs> So the point is they they finished up at the wrong stable with the the wrong person thinking that person was the Messiah, of course. So the last little bit there was them coming to take the gifts back off Brian's mother uh, because they'd realized that the, the, the stable they were looking for was up the street. Now, because then the, uh, the whole movie really then uh, is based around the fact that of this mistake that Brian is the Messiah. So, so you have this whole deal going on that and you get a couple of shots where Jesus is ministering, but there's this whole thing going on around Brian where they're absolutely convinced that, that Brian is the Messiah. Now, what's interesting is there's some comments I put down from notable literally, literary and political figures. Because there is a problem here that, that the Python boys were picking up that sometimes in the church we're too stiff and staid to recognize is actually happening, which is... Not the issue of the existence of Christ, but who the real Christ is. And in the reality of who he is, what does he really come to do and what does that demand of us? Here's what Mark Twain, the great American author, said. If Christ were here, there is one thing he would not be, a Christian. Now you have to say, why would Mark Twain say that? Because somehow in his desire to find the Christ and his research and then his experiences of the Christian community, he was seeing there was a conflict between the Christ who he was discovering in the Bible and the Christ as presented by the religious community. Here's another one. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That was Mahatma Gandhi. The... Um, the leader of the Indian nation into independence. And then my dear old friend Richard Dawkins, with whom I have 
a million issues, but not on this statement. He's the guy who wrote The God Delusion. Nothing is wrong with peace and love. It is all the more regrettable that so many of Christ's followers seem to disagree. So, outside of our experience, we, we have to acknowledge that there is a whole weight of feeling and thought that does not quite perceive Christ in the ways that we would like them to perceive Him. Do you understand where I'm coming from? And so, people related more to a movie called The Life of Brian because they saw the foolishness that happens in the context of religious practice and the search for the divine that often leads us to follow uh, uh, an image of what we think is God's Son that is nothing more than a creation of our own need and imagination. Uh, we would be arrogant to the highest degree to presume that we could never make that mistake. Now let me illustrate that in the best way that I know how. When Jesus was born, he came to a people who the Bible declares as his own. He came to his own. In other words, they were his nation and he was the culmination of a belief within the nation that the Messiah would come and redeem the nation back to God and cause Ultimately, that became distorted that the Messiah would come and free them from the rule of the Romans because in the end of the day, what they wanted was an empire as powerful as the Romans. Hence the reason why, why um, his disciples said to Jesus on two or three occasions, you know, will, will you deliver us from, you know, from captivity of the Romans at this time? So we have a group of people at that time who... Um, they had as much of the Bible as, as it was possible to have in the sense that what we now know as the Old Testament were the, were the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? Obviously, they didn't have the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet, but what some people also forget is that the, the first church emerging from the message of Jesus didn't have the New Testament either. So this whole idea is you've got to go to the Word, brother, that's where you find out it's helpful, but it's not the be-all and end-all because actually Christ is at the center of this thing. So, so what I'm trying to help you to do is not discrediting the things that go around it, but to say Christ has to be firmly at the center, but then it has to be the Christ of God, the Christ of, of, of the Bible. Okay, so, so here we've got these people, and they um, really are very knowledgeable about the, the scriptures that they have, the Bible, the Old Testament. They, they, many of them can quote it verbatim. Hence why Jesus would quote scripture and they would quote scripture back. Um, they were also people who prayed lots. Um, they went to church lots, the synagogue, the temple. Um, they were very devout in their belief and um, very sincere about their desire to find and love and serve God. Um, they were also committed in every other area, so in giving, they, they, they um, without exception, would give 10% of not just their income, but things that they grew in their fields and their, their allotments and all that stuff. They, they would go to the extent even of something called fasting, which is when you go without food to pray and to read and to meditate. So every 
attribute that we would assign to spirituality and to very high levels of spirituality, very, very committed, very devout spirituality was present. And they also believed the prophecies that were in the Old Testament books. Those prophecies were pointing to a special event. That special event was unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. So they were looking for this person who they knew as Messiah or Deliverer. Okay? So pretty much to, to a, a man and a woman, they were looking for this Messiah. And they had everything in place, spiritually, devoutly, that should be in place. And then Jesus was born. The very one that they said they were looking for, the very one that they said they would recognize, the very one that they said would be God incarnate, the very one they said would be their deliverer, their champion, their favorite, he actually was born and they didn't like him from day one. So he was the one who all their devotion and practice suggested they would accept. But when he actually turned up, they couldn't accept him because in all their devotion and in all their knowledge, they had created an image of who they thought Messiah would be and Jesus didn't fit the image. So we already have a model here that when God turns up in the flesh, it probably doesn't look like we would expect, even with all our devotion, Bible knowledge, prayer, giving, fasting, commitments, and service, okay? So, what you have to understand is, although physically the Romans crucified Jesus, the Romans didn't want to crucify Jesus. The Roman governor did everything in his power to try and make sure Jesus wasn't crucified, because he said, I can't find a single fault in him. But those people who said they were waiting for him were the ones who killed him because they did not want the Messiah to be like Jesus actually was. They wanted the Messiah to be like they would like the Messiah to be. Now here's what I've learned over many years, that, that, that the arrogance of our own position with our knowledge and our understanding and our expertise and our study can put us in the same place that those people were 2,000 years ago, that when we have to experience who the Christ of heaven is like, we can make the same mistake of wanting God's Messiah Jesus to look like we think a Jesus should look rather than look like Jesus looks. So, when you look at the life of Jesus, it, it, you have to acknowledge, if you're being honest, that here we have a revolutionary figure. Um, not a revolutionary in the sense of violent overthrow, but revolutionary in the sense that his ideas and his ideals and his presentations and his statements are so radical that, that it conflicts with the current accepted belief of the religious community of the time 
And they would argue with Jesus, the Son of God, from the Bible, to show him from the Bible that he was not the one prophesied to come in the Bible, and convince themselves to decide to the point of killing him that he could not possibly be the one. They were wrong. They were wrong. Now, it wasn't a mistake because, you know, God somehow doesn't find what he purposes to do subject to the mistakes of humanity, which I absolutely love. So they were wrong, but in being wrong, what happened proved not to be so much a mistake as it was a solution to the very reason why what happened happened. So, so we have this, this, this problem going on, and and of course, they claimed history was on their side. So the argument was, listen, Jesus, we've read the scriptures. You're not the Messiah. Okay? So this is the, this is the one who Jesus' disciple John called the Word. Right? He's like, he's like the part of God that when God speaks, it looks like him and has done from the beginning. So in essence, the very thing that they were using to say, that he wasn't who he was, was the very thing that he had spoken himself, which was the word now in print, or on stone, or on papyrus, the word of God as they knew it. Jesus was the word of God made flesh. They were using the very thing that he had spoken to prove that he wasn't who he said he was. Do you see where I'm, I'm coming from? So, bit of a mess. And, of course, they threw the whole, well, we're the children of Moses, we're the children of Abraham, we're the children of God, all that stuff. So, their primary argument against this unconventional Messiah that they could not get their head around could possibly be the Jesus of God, their, their argument was that we know the Scriptures, we've studied the Scriptures, we are devout towards God, and history is on our side. Now, as one becomes open to an emerging revelation of Jesus the Word now, one can't but help but discover that that same radical expression of God is still who Jesus is. And that just like the people in that day, we want to do two things. Number one, we want to domesticate and sanitize Jesus. Um, the sad thing is, there is much more preaching in churches, and I, I probably as guilty of this as anyone, much more preaching in churches of Paul's version of the gospel which actually is worse than that because what it tends to be is it tends to be my version of my parents' version of the leaders of the denomination that we were in's version, of William Boo's version, you know, of, of Luther's version, of Augustine's version, of Paul's version of Jesus, right? So, so, so it gets when Joel talked about toxic whispers. It, I think there's a great purity, and I think God has, has protected the authenticity and the integrity of his word, but, but the key issue of God's desire was the word became flesh and dwelled among us, that Jesus is the exact image of the Father. Okay, so thank God for the Bible, but Jesus is the exact image. So, so 
the problem is, we still, and I found as I read the Gospels afresh, I find Jesus hard to deal with, I'll be honest. I mean, it's much easier to flip into some other books and, you know, where you've just got statements about this and statements about that, but trying to get to the bottom of, of this incredible God-man and his endeavors to revolutionize the thinking of a generation for the sake of the world because that generation in all their piety had now created an image of Messiah that didn't look like Messiah. So when the two were overlaid, one of them had to go. Guess which one went? Isn't it funny how when we built our image of something and we confronted with the real image, guess which one we get rid of? So we get things like, I'm not coming to hear that guy because all he talks about is grace. In other words, I can't accept this overlaying what I believe. So one of these has got to go. So for all of us, we are faced, particularly those of us who've maybe been around for some time and have some understanding of the Bible like these people back then and, uh, and maybe known a little bit about Jesus, we, we, we face this challenge that when Christ begins to emerge outside of the boundaries of our current determined position, is it our current determined position that we let go, or do we say we will not have this man to rule over us? So I have to confess to you that in these last 11 years of my life, I've met a Jesus that I didn't know. I kind of knew him in the sense that I knew he loved me and I received his kindness, but actually knowing him and something really about who he is, I think I've probably learned more about him in the last 11 years than I had in the previous 40 and a bit. So, so this, is, this, is, this is where we find ourselves in the picture. So, so the question is, the challenge is to you and to me. Okay, so, what if the Jesus of, of God, the Jesus of Abba, the Jesus of the Gospels, the Messiah of prophecy, what if actually the more we look and see him, we see that there are discrepancies between our current conclusions and our emerging revelation? Now, it's very scary because every Jewish man or woman, and particularly if you were a Jewish leader or a rabbi who felt responsible you were going to be extremely protective of what it is that you had already concluded because you'd already taught that and therefore it would feel very uncomfortable to leave that behind to begin to allow yourself to embrace and emerge into something new. Listen, I understand that difficulty. Some of this journey has frightened the living daylights out of me. Uh, particularly when you link that with a judgment-based gospel that that the stakes are heaven and hell, and therefore the stakes are if you as a leader lead people wrong, you're going to be in ten times hell, whatever that is. You know, it will be worse than, how could it be worse than... So, so I, have, I have lived with those background fears in my mind about the, the responsibility uh, that I have towards the people for whom I have a platform to speak, but if that becomes the determining factor of our courage or lack of courage to follow 
a revelation of who Jesus is, then actually we shouldn't be doing this anyway because all we're doing is building a religious organization, an institution. So I'm trying to drag you through the pages of history to see that, that they faced that challenge then, but they refused to embrace the challenge. So instead of Jesus being applauded and received in the full revelation of who he was, he was, he was taken and beaten and crucified and rejected. And what should have been a glorious outcome for Israel itself finished up 40 years later with Jerusalem and the temple that they so love being raised to the ground, not one stone left standing upon another. Because Jesus said, I would, I would have taken you under my wings like a hen covers a chicks, but you wouldn't let me. And so he said, so your house is left to your desolate. In other words, guys... You're making decisions that have outcomes that are not God making that happen to you, but it's you not accepting what could have happened had you embraced the revelation that was coming to you. So, so do you see why this challenge is so important? Do you see why I wanted to show you that movie that we can finish up at Brian's manger instead of Jesus' manger, okay? So until we grasp the concept that Jesus is an unmessiah-like messiah, Sent from an ungodlike God, we will struggle to come to terms with either of them in their proper context, free from a Judaistic or Greco-Roman worldview. So I'm appealing to you again that Jesus was an unmessiah-like Messiah. He didn't look like any Messiah that they expected would look like. And God is an ungodlike God because he's not like the model of the gods that we have been given through our Greco-Roman mindset. So, as this thing goes on, of course, there is a big following or looking for Brian. And um, uh, the find where Brian lives at his mother's, and uh, I can't show you the bit prior to this because it's a bit naughty and it would be inappropriate. But, but this is one of the classic Python scenes, and also the title of my message tonight. So the crowd actually find where Brian lives because they, they haven't learned anything. So from this mistake at the beginning, there's a big following. Brian's trying to get rid of these people, right? And he's not successful in doing it. And it, it led to this, so the, the crowd come to his home and this is what happened. Now you listen here. He's not the facade. He's a very naughty boy. One more time so you get it. Now you listen here. He's not the facade. He's a very naughty boy. Okay, so. If you change the wording slightly of the people in Jesus' day, they were saying the same thing about Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Now, if you don't believe me, go and read the Gospels. Huh, he's from Nazareth. We know his father, who of course wasn't his father, but they were actually true. They didn't really know his father, who was God, but that's kind of the message within the message. Has anything good ever come out of, of, of Galilee? So Jesus was perceived by the people to be a boy from a poor region 
of Galilee and a town called Nazareth who worked with his father, the tradesman, and was not considered at all to have any credibility to be the Son of God. So, so actually, this was very clever scripting in the life of Brian because this would have been the very thing that you would have said as a Jew in that day about Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy because if you're pretending to be the Messiah, you're a very naughty boy. So, I want to read you something in the light of that from Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christianity. I've read this little bit before, but the other I haven't, and then, and then I'll, I'll bring you to a close. It, when I celebrate Jesus, some people get upset. Just saying the name Jesus doesn't mean much until we make clear which Jesus we're talking about. We must face the fact that many different saviors can be smuggled in under the name Jesus. Just as many different deities can be disguised under the term God. Or vastly different ways of living can be promoted under the name Christianity. Jesus can be a victim of identity theft. And people can say and do things with and in his name that he would never ever do. So, let me... Now go on to say this. I'd like to show you this, but I'll read it to you. A scene in the lowbrow 2006 comedy, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, if you've never seen it, you have got to watch it. It's hilarious. Captured the problem we face. Racing legend Ricky Bobby gathers his family, plus his father-in-law and best friend Carl, around the table and says grace for the food. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, he begins... Or as our brothers in the south call you, Jesus. We thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. He continues praying to dear Lord Baby Jesus and dear Tiny Infant Jesus. Thanking him for my family, my beautiful two sons, Walker and Texas Ranger. You have to be of a certain age to get that. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife. The prayer continues with Ricky Bobby asking the Lord to use his baby Jesus' powers to heal his father-in-law because his leg smells, okay? Finally, his wife interrupts. You know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Ricky Bobby replies, well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus, or teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus, or whoever you want. At this point, his friend Carl pipes up with his preferences. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo with a t-shirt, because it says I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. Then one of the boys adds that he likes to think of Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. And Carl adds... I like to picture my Jesus with angel wings and he's singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner and I'm in the front row, hammered drunk. Ricky Bobby returns to his prayer. Dear eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, you don't even know a word yet, just a little infant and so cuddly but still omnipotent. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the 21.2 million dollars, woo, love that money, that I've accrued over this past season. However ridiculous or tasteless the scene may be, 
It mirrors as only satire can a sad reality of church history and of today's religious landscape. We're all tempted to remake Jesus into just about anything we like. We like a Jesus who, as Annie Lamotte has said, hates the people we hate and likes whatever we like. Whether in terms of partying like Karl or fighting like the sun or politics of either left or right or cuddly omnipotence like Ricky Bobby, at least Ricky Bobby seems somewhat aware of what he's doing, choosing the image he likes best. In contrast, too many of us, whether as individuals or groups, honestly and naively believe that our view is objective and true with no distortions at all. Among those who become more self-aware about the danger of distortion, an understandable fear arises. If all of us, not just all of them, attempted to remake Jesus in our own image, then we should be extremely cautious about compromising, letting Jesus be reimagined according to contemporary tastes, Thoughtful readers have probably already anticipated a problem with this, otherwise well-founded caution. By holding a presumptive hostility to new views of Jesus which may indeed reflect contemporary biases, we may unwittingly preserve old views of Jesus which no less reflect dangerous and compromising biases, just biases of the past rather than biases of the present. So in successfully rejecting an insipid, hippie, diaper, halo Christ, we may unintentionally protect and uphold the white supremacist Jesus, the colonial Jesus, the Eurocentric Jesus, the Republican or Democrat Jesus, the Labour or Conservative Jesus, the capitalist or communist Jesus, the slave-owning Jesus, the nuclear bomb-dropping America First Jesus, the organ music stained glass nostalgic sentimental Jesus, the anti-science know-nothing simpleton Jesus, the prosperity gospel get-rich-quick Jesus, the institutional white shirt and tie Jesus, the Native American slaying genocidal Jesus, the cuddly omnipotent Christmas Jesus, the male chauvinist Jesus, the homophobic God-hates-fags Jesus, the South African apartheid Jesus, the Joe Six-Pack Jesus, the anti-Semitic Nazi Jesus, the anti-Muslim crusader Jesus, and so on. Those who think they stand had better take heed lest they fall and those who think they know may have some more learning to do. So the issue is I'm not trying to contend with your integrity or your own piety of belief. What I'm trying to challenge is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus turned up in the flesh and could not be accepted for who he was. So is the Jesus who comes now, the word made flesh in 21st century Britain, in York, here in this place, do we accept the challenge that he brings into our life to change our understanding and views of God, which is what Jesus came to do? Remember, Jesus never came. This is part of the error of that problem. Jesus didn't come to change how God sees us. Jesus came to change how we see God. So he's still doing that, but in a 21st century context. So the issue is, do we fight that? Do we resist that? Or are we willing to say, we'll follow you, Jesus? I mean, let's be clear on this. Everybody has a God, and everybody has a Messiah. I object to atheism suggesting that it is a godless, messiahless philosophy. It is not. Everybody has a God, 
Everybody has a Messiah. Even if it's football or beer or philosophy or knowledge or science, everybody has a God. Everybody has a Messiah. What we have to measure is who is the God we're talking about and who is the Messiah that is revealed. I love something that Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said. He says, Jesus is the God whom we can approach without pride and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. It's beautiful. Jesus is the God whom we can approach without pride and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. Another guy, Charles Edward Jefferson, said this, there is something so pure and frank and noble about him that to doubt his sincerity would be like doubting the brightness of the sun. I'm simply trying to break down some false images that we have that actually become false gods that, that God is maybe trying to dismantle so we can see the Jesus who comes in the flesh to us now. See, the message of Christ is not Christianity. That's the problem. The message of Christ is not Christianity. The, measure of, the message of Christ is Christ, pure and simple. I am the way the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the door. The message of Christ is not Christianity. That's the problem. The message of Christ is Christ and what we're coming back to is the message of Christ which is Christ so that whatever our Christianity may be, it is an expression of that emerging revelation of this radical revolutionary Messiah who comes into time and space and shatters our conceptions and misconceptions, challenges our interpretation of Scripture, challenges our image of God, and says, if you'll understand this and see me, you will actually see the Father. So, this Jesus invites us to trust him. And that's simply the essence of what we call the gospel. He invites us to trust him. Jesus came and he was saying, really, trust me. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know your sacred cows are being destroyed. I know your idols are being pulled down. I know your images are being shattered. I know your history is being shaken and your head's in the world, but trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And he still says that to us today. And I'm asking you to trust him. So I want to show you one more video which I've showed you before. This is not from Monty Python. It's, it's from Brennan Manning. And uh, some of you have seen this before, but I want to show you this and then, then I'll make one last comment and then, and then we're done. So this is Brennan Manning. This is where we come to. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus in a little chapel, in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania. And then literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is gonna ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? that I waited for you day after day, that I longed to hear the sound of your voice. The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful 
in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image. He won't have to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word, he is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ, who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be because you're never going to be as you should be. So, the good news is that there is a Messiah who is the Messiah who is not a very naughty boy. There's a Messiah who's true, whose word is true, and there is that person that that Brennan was talking about. And we're implored to love him with your heart, your mind, and your strength. I love the fact that we don't just love him with our heart and we don't just love him with our strength, but he said, I want you to love me with your mind. In other words, I want you to understand that these things we've been talking about are valid in the context of our loving him because we can love him with the mind because the mind has ruled out the images that we have superimposed and said, Jesus, my mind now comes to grasp you are bigger, better, greater, more than and more loving. I believe this is the Messiah of God. I believe this is the Jesus of the Gospels. I believe this is the Christ, the anointed of God. I believe this is the Savior. This is the one who comes and changes us and who asks us to trust him. My fear is that you will trust a Messiah other than him. And I apologize if I have ever presented to you a Messiah 
that was other than him. I believe the grace of God may cover that, but he doesn't excuse it. Today I want you to be open to say I want the Messiah of God, the Jesus of the Gospels, the one sent from Abba, because he is the Word made flesh. He is the Savior of the world. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is the one who is the door to God. He is the one who is the bread of life, who is the water of life, the one to whom, when you come to him, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let's just bow our heads. In Jesus' name, I pray today that you will put your trust in that Jesus. You may want to do that. I'm not going to ask for any demonstration. Trust's an interesting thing because trust is not the result of words. Trust is the result of a heart and mind shift. Okay? I've had lots of people say they trust me until I did something that, like Jesus the Messiah, didn't quite fit the model that they expected. But you see, real trust comes, comes from the heart, from the mind, that is a shift. It's a shift in position that says, I trust you, I do trust you, I will trust you. And in that trust comes the transformation that Jesus promised. So put your trust in him right now. Put your trust in him. Shift your position and open yourself to the word made flesh here in you tonight who is full of grace and truth. So Father, thank you for your word. May it transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're done and we love you and bless you. And every tired person from the grotto is released to go home soon. And if we need to leave the keys behind for somebody to lock up, we can do that. All right, bless you. So don't forget Wednesday, uh, early adopters, uh, Wednesday, others not. Otherwise, we'll see you for our Christmas special next Saturday. And God bless you. Bring some friends.